taking us out to the intermission, we have a Chris Ward, aka Chris Chinchilla, who is an ex-indie muso, open source advocate, activist, and uber geek. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. I had a, an introduction sort of prepared, which I'm, I'm going to ignore, um, of why I wanted to talk about this particular person. Number one I will stick with in that I originally hail from uh, Greenwich in London, which is where time comes from. <laughs> Hang on, I'm just... I'm, just, uh, <laughs> I'm in the aircon stream, sorry. <laughs> okay. But um, I actually wanted to go back to Mel's Indigenous Welcome. And it's something I've always wanted to do, but being uh, of a British passport, I've always felt tremendously guilty of doing it. Um, I'm, I'm going to, in a, in a way. <laughs> um, and I guess um, this person I'm going to speak about, probably if it wasn't for what they'd done, maybe it would have been a lot harder to do some of the things the British Empire did. So... I guess that's an apology instead of a welcome, but anyway. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about uh, John Harrison. Um, and I will start this firstly, and it's kind of an important point. He wasn't really a scientist. Uh, he was actually an engineer, and that's kind of the point. So, let's start at the beginning. It's the 1700s, and the British Empire is burgeoning. In fact, many empires across Europe are burgeoning, with trade and colonial ships crisscrossing around the globe. Now, apart from the ones, of course, that keep getting lost. Uh, there's no GPS, there's no Google Maps, there's not even Apple Maps to help you. <laughs> now, <laughs> in the sea, I don't think even those will help you. But anyway, um, at this time, we have uh, longitude and latitude. We know our place on the, on the globe and why... It's a problem in the first place, is a whole other discussion. But it's reasonably easy to figure out your north-south position on the globe, which is latitude. Well, relatively easy at the time in that it could be found by looking at the altitude of the sun at noon and then with the aid of a table giving you the sun's declination for the day, which actually was quite slow and um, so still not great if you were in a hurry. For longitude, which is the east-west position, Early ocean navigators basically just relied on dead reckoning or the gut feeling. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so it was kind of known what needed to happen. So theoretically, um, as the uh, Earth rotates at a steady rate of 360 degrees per day, there's a direct relationship between time and longitude. So if the navigator knew the time at a fixed reference point and then... Um, when some event occurred at the ship's location, the difference between the reference time and the apparent time would give the ship's position relative to the fixed location with kind of differences in time equals to degrees of distance. So finding local time when in sight of land was of course easy. You just ask someone what the time was. Um, but when you're on a ship in the middle of nowhere, mm, there was, even, there was a lot of theories about how to solve this at the time, and one even fairly crazy one actually quite appropriate for the day, although I'm a bit late now. There was a theory that if you had a wounded dog aboard a ship with the animal's discarded bandage left in the trust of a timekeeper on shore, 
who would then dip the bandage in something called the powder of sympathy at a predetermined time and cause the creature to yelp, <laughs> causing the creature to yelp, thus giving the captain of the ship an accurate knowledge of the time. Though there are no records of the effectiveness of this procedure, and it's also uncertain if it ever really was tried or if it was actually just a joke. So, so, so. But um, whatever the method, a joke or not, it was inaccurate. Especially on long journeys when you're crossing vast oceans and out of sight of land for months sometimes. It's very slow and journeys often ended in, in tragedy. So finding an adequate solution to determining longitude was of paramount importance at this time. So we come forward a few years, 1714. We're in London at the establishment of the British government's uh, Board of Longitude and the announcement of a competition to solve the problem of longitude once and for all. They offered a cash prize of £20,000, which is about $4 million, um, presented in stages for varying accuracies of um, basically where people ended up as opposed to where they wanted to end up. It wasn't the first prize offered by a government, uh, but it was one of the largest. And in fact, due to the um, international effort in solving the problem and the scale of the enterprise, it actually represents, figuratively speaking, one of the largest scientific endeavours in history. So now enters John Harrison, 1693 to 1776, from Yorkshire. Um, yes, and that's um, sort of significant as well because it wasn't London. <laughs> um, he was trained as a carpenter, which is also significant because he had a completely different perspective on solving the problem from the more mainstream scientists of the day. In fact, he wasn't really a scientist then. Sorry, shh, don't, don't tell anyone. He wasn't really a scientist. And in fact, this story is pretty much scientists versus engineers and the snobbery of scientists at the time, of course. <laughs> yes, of course, yes. So he set out to solve the problem through his practical engineering skills. So what he needed to do was produce a reliable clock to measure the time that would keep the time of a given place. But the difficulty was producing a clock that was not affected by variations in temperature, pressure, humidity, and remained accurate over a long time. It also needed to uh, resist corrosion in salt air and be able to function on board a constantly moving ship. And many far more famous scientists, including Isaac Newton, doubted that this could ever happen and favoured other methods such as the uh, method of lunar distances. And I will quickly go into that. So the method of lunar distances is that the moon moves fast enough, 13 degrees a day, to easily measure the movement from day to day. And then by comparing the angle between the moon and the sun for the day you left uh, your source, your home place, <laughs> I can't think of the right word, uh, the proper position, i.e. how it would appear where you came from, of the moon could be calculated by comparing this with the angle of the moon over the horizon. And then long as you could be calculated. It was reasonably accurate, but very slow, because it required constant calculation. So this was actually one of Harrison's biggest battles throughout his career, fighting against the scientific establishment and convincing it that his unorthodox methods for solving the problem were more accurate and more effective. And it wasn't helped at all by the fact that uh, a man called Neville uh, Maskelin who was a prime supporter of the lunar method, uh, was approved Astronomer Royal and therefore on the board of longitude. So he constantly returned inaccurate reports of Harrison's watches on trials, claiming that 
it was just a fluke, um, that there were inaccuracies cancelling each other out and, and all sorts of things. And he refused to allow it to be uh, factored in when testing. So um, consequently, his first watches failed the needs of the board, despite the fact it actually succeeded in trials. Um, his other kind of issue, typical for an engineer, I guess, was he was a massive perfectionist. And he sort of refused to even acknowledge the accuracy of his own clocks, constantly trying to refine them and tweak them, um, slowly turning them from a large kind of desk clock, that sort of size, into a, a pocket watch, an old school pocket watch. So thus it took him most of his life to actually produce what he considered the final piece, which didn't help. But slowly, slowly, over time, his, his novel methods, and these include things like wooden parts, which prevent, again, rust, and a dumbbell instead of a pendulum to help with the balance, won him lots of supporters from those who had actually used the watches, not the scientists. So, for example, Captain Cook was a massive supporter of his watches. And bit by bit, he won bits of the prize. Just never the full amount, but bits of it. Uh, and this was mainly because he requested an audience with uh, King George III, who was a king at the time, who tested the watch himself and thought it was amazing. So he encouraged him to petition Parliament and then... Finally, they award him just over a quarter of the prize. And three years later, he died, aged 83. Now, this isn't quite the sad story, it sounds. Throughout his lifetime, he did actually receive a reasonable amount of money um, from him for his efforts, and more than any other person who competed in the prize. Um, you're talking, he was reasonably wealthy in his latter, at least his latter decade. But this money covered staff, materials, and all sorts of things. It wasn't just cash in your pocket. But he never officially won the award, which is what he really wanted. But in fact, no one ever has. No one ever did, and no one ever has. Um, so it's kind of the one thing he was striving for and never got given out. Um, and much like many of the stories I guess you hear here, it took some time after his death for his ideas to become more widespread. Um, slowly becoming more affordable. This was a crucial thing. They weren't that cheap to make and utilised and easier to sort of mass manufacture. And they slowly became an essential part of naval navigation throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, eventually completely surpassing the lunar method and pretty much in use until more modern systems we have now. His original clocks were lost for quite a while uh, and they were found, I couldn't actually find out where, but just after the First World War, and they were restored. And they can be still seen at the Greenwich Observatory in Greenwich, unsurprisingly, where time starts. I took my wife to the Meridian Line, and I was like, look, whoo, and she was completely underwhelmed. But anyway, um, so they have been restored, and they are in the observatory where you can see them. And all of them, bear in mind this is over th 300 years ago, all of them, bar one, still work um, and are still accurate. And in fact, one of his non-sea clocks, which was built in the 1720s in a village in Lincolnshire, is also still running accurately. Um, so his legacy continues. And um, I guess if you're interested in knowing more about the story, and it's quite a fascinating story, there's a great book that was put out by uh, Darva Sobel um, in 95 called Longitude, The True Story of a Lone Genius Who Solved the Greatest Scientific Problem of His Time. So thank you very much.